Hello, Garland Nixon here, and I am once again fortunate enough to get an opportunity to interview or have a conversation with Jody Brar. She is the vice chair of the British Communist Party, and she is the spokesperson for the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. Let's talk. Hi, Garland here with Jody Brar. And for those of you out there, I would ask that anyone out there that has a Twitter account, if you would be so kind, unlike me, has a Twitter account, if you would be so kind, share this video on your Twitter account. Um, I woke up this morning to find out that my account is, uh, Twitter account is locked or suspended. Um, they, I got the old click here to reset your password when I click here. It said no account has been found to Garland Nixon and um, you can appeal your suspended or locked account. And I'm thinking, well, if they did it for security for my own good, I wonder why I need to appeal it. But apparently, you know, I'd have to um, appeal it by saying I love neoliberalism. Yay, war is good. Oh, gay, okay, that's the appeal we're looking for. You are reinstated, but that ain't happening. So instead, I'll talk to Jody Brar. She is brilliant, and we will be fortunate enough to find out, um, you know, to have a great conversation. All right, let's start here, Jody. Um, BRICS. Here's something I'm wondering about. BRICS. Um, India, I'm not going to say right now that it seems to be a weak link, but India seems to be hesitating. I've seen, you know, a lot of people see BRICS as an opportunity to provide an economic um, opening for the countries that are being oppressed by Western imperialism, by the U.S. empire that are being economically held back. India seems, you know, they seem to be hedging from time to time. I want to get your thoughts on that. You know far more about India than I do, which is pretty much nothing. Uh, I don't know nearly as much about India as I feel I ought to as someone of Indian origins. Uh, But, you know, I grew up in Britain, so I'm allowed to be quite ignorant. Uh, (laughs) When it comes to India's position in BRICS, I think weak link is really a correct evaluation of India's position throughout the period of of the BRICS, which goes back quite a long way now. Um, You know, India's in an ambivalent position in the sense that uh, it's tried very hard to be a member of the club with the Europeans, but has been firmly kind of put in its place, I would say. But there's a kind of uh, a flip-flopping that goes on, where on the one hand, it's not quite allowed in the at the top table because it's supposed to know its place as a as a kind of neo colony and a and a stooge. Um, but on the other hand. It's a big country with a lot of resources, uh, with uh, uh, aspirations to develop and and become a power in the world. It has a ruling class uh, which is quite split between comprador and nationalist elements. But fundamentally, you know, India has a independent kind of a mindset. Even its ruling class is quite independent minded. Uh, we saw that with the war in Ukraine, and that really kind of cemented uh, a kind of division 
or, 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 or deepened a division that was growing between India and the West. You know, India, I think, when it joined the um, uh, the Quad, when it was invited to join the Quad by the Americans, felt like, oh, we're being let into the club, right? And they're with Japan, they're with the USA, uh, and there's this feeling of like, oh, yes, we are important partners in the Pacific and all that sort of thing. Um, but when the USA, Britain and Australia signed the AUKUS agreement behind the backs of India, I mean, they upset France with that because of scuppering the nuclear submarine deal. But I think they really offended India uh, when they signed that pact because it very much felt like uh, there's a top table uh, in the world and you're never getting on it you don't look right and, and it's not even just looks you know i mean this you know you, you could sum up imperialism as like white power but it's not true is it it's really um you know india is too populous a country to enter the club of the imperialists so their role is to stay to say stay super exploited and just have a, a small class that facilitates that you know the role of the ruling class that's been left behind in the post-colonial republics is supposed to be facilitate continued looting with a brown or black face, right? That's supposed to be their job. The problem is that everybody's not really that happy to just continue that way. The masses don't get anything out of it. And even big sections of the elites um, aren't always happy that that's the way that things are going to continue, you know, ad infinitum. India's a big country. It doesn't have to put up with this. It has everything it needs to develop and, in fact, has been developing recently. So you have this sort of ambivalence-like situation, I think. And, um, you know, the, it, it's it's kind of difficult as well because the Modi government is not a popular um, government in for many parts of the population. It's, it's, it's con conducted itself in a very fascistic sectarian way they've mobilized extreme right-wing forces to prop up their rule they've represented the interests of a certain type of capital but very much against the interests of large masses of the indian people who they've worked very hard to push down it sort of looked like there was a moment uh, where there was a possibility of some kind of national unity um coalescing around of all things the russian special military operation in ukraine um because all of Indian society uh, was sympathised with Russia, all of Indian society refused to, didn't want to break its relations with Russia from the top to the bottom. That was a, a kind of unifying approach to what was happening in the world. And those two things, the fact that India was kind of uh, pushed aside, if you like, by the, the, the formation of AUKUS on the one hand, and that on the other hand, um, it was... Um, offending the Americans and prepared to offend the Americans and the British by not going along with the war effort and support for the war in Ukraine and not being not going along with the campaign of demonizing Russia um, put a bit of a barrier uh, a gulf I think between the imperialists and India and into that gulf came also a business opportunity that was created by the sanctions which I think is also something we have to recognise that uh, this totally self-defeating sanctions war that was launched against uh, Russia by Europe and the USA, um, when it didn't immediately um, have its intended effect, it was supposed to be like a kind of blitzkrieg of sanctions that really quickly would bring down Russia. Uh, 
that didn't work. And instead, what was seen was Russia had built up its resilience uh, since 2014, when the beginning of a of a lower level, but still quite harsh sanctions regime began. Um, Russia had been building up its resilience and building up sectors of its economy that it needed in order to have sovereignty and not be able to be blackmailed by the West. Rebuilding its agriculture, which of course was very strong in the Soviet times, had been um, considerably dismantled, but there was still enough of a base there and enough investment capital available from the sale of oil and gas that could be redirected by the state to rebuild Russian agriculture. Really, really important. Food sovereignty, ask the Africans, right? Food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, these are, and then a strong military. These are the bases of being able to actually exercise your sovereignty and not just have a flag and a national anthem and the ability, you know, basically no ability to stop the imperialists walking all over you. Um, so Russia had been doing that. The sanctions regime wasn't working. Um, but the Europeans needed the oil that they sanctions said they're not allowed to have, right? So in steps India, perfect opportunity to do a bit of business. A whole load of oil gets shipped to India. It's kind of, I don't know, they change the labels, maybe refine it a little bit, sell it to Europe, a nice healthy markup, happy days. Uh, India's making quite a lot of money out of that. So, you know, there, there was a moment where it looked like India was, you know, kind of coming more back towards or, or moving towards seeing an advantage for itself in allying itself more firmly with the BRICS. But it's always been a kind of half in, half out. It has a ruling class which is quite torn. And I think that's a situation that probably is going to continue for quite some time. Sorry, I muted myself. Let's go to Africa since we're talking BRICS. Um, the discussion at BRICS, the, the issue of um, other countries um, coming in, um, I think to me, the most interesting phenomenon, um, is the Saudi change over the last couple of years. The Saudis went from what people, you know, legitimately interpreted as a, a you know, a client state of the U.S. to, um, and certainly, you know, we could talk about the issues in, 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 in Saudi Arabia, but, you know, I'm not the guy that says I'm going to use, you know, human rights and all of these things to point out, uh, the weaknesses of countries, you know, living in the United States. But the bottom line is this. Saudi Arabia seems to at least have said, looked at this and said, you know, it's not in our best interest to continue with the, these people. And let's face it, we're selling more oil to China now. <laughs> we're sending more, we got other options here. And Saudi Arabia coming into BRICS, the expansion of BRICS, the discussion of an alternative currency, which probably would be long years out. Your thoughts of this BRICS meeting going on in Africa right now, the importance of it. What, do you, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, coming to the question of Saudi Arabia, I have personally found this absolutely fascinating. Like you, I've long considered Saudi Arabia to be, you know, an absolute um, I don't know, like an anathema, you know, a, a regime that, uh, you know, represents everything I most detest in the world, um, which was propped up and allowed to continue in its kind of feudal suppression of its people and, you know, horrific role in the region by US military support and British uh, military and financial. You know, they, they propped up this the, uh, uh, feudal uh, autocracy because it suited them. So, you know, it, uh, it 
it totally gives the lie to the imperialist propaganda that they're all about democracy. They couldn't give a monkeys about democracy. They care about their domination and, and they'll use whatever will, uh, will facilitate their domination. And in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, it was, it was carving up the Middle East into various fiefdoms that they could control. And a lot of the map of the Middle East was really designed around, around the oil. So it was very much designed to separate as much as possible the Arab populations from the big centers of oil. Uh, and where that, you know, sometimes that wasn't possible, like in Iraq, but, but, and of course they wanted to break Iraq into pieces in order to better facilitate that. But, you know, if you look at the map of the Middle East, you know, some of these countries are, uh, what we basically call oil wells with a flag, right? They're not countries. The, all the working population comes from abroad and has no rights, right? So Saudi Arabia, um, you're right, you know, the question of human rights in Saudi Arabia is a, is a very serious one. The imperialists don't care about it, but they use it um, when they want to. <laughs> um, now, as far as I'm concerned, the question of human rights in any country is a question for the people there to resolve. I'm quite sure that the Saudi regime would not have been able to carry on the way it had without the support that it had from the imperialists propping them up. Right. If that support had been taken away a long time ago, I'm sure the Saudi people would have made short work of these exploiters and oppressors who were put over them and kept over them. So it's very interesting to see how the re the recoalescence, I'm calling it, of the anti-imperialist movement. You know, this is not it's not a new phenomenon in the sense that we've never seen an anti-imperialist bloc in the world before. You know, we've we've had an anti-imperialist power in the world ever since 1917, ever since the October Revolution. After World War II, it grew substantially and became very significant. And we really had uh, options. Countries in the world had options when they when they came to their um, uh, liberation movements, which were unstoppable, really, because of the October Revolution and because of the Soviet victory and the Chinese victory over fascism in World War II. The, the march towards um, physical decolonization, liberation of the colonies was an unstoppable march. And it was actually in some ways helped along by the Americans because they were the new imperial power that didn't, but they didn't have physical colonies. So they come along and be friends to the colonial, anti-colonial movements and say, we, we just, we just want to help you guys with loans and stuff. Like we're not like those horrible old colonizers you used to know. We're, we're the good guys in the world or Europe, Europeans are bad, weren't they? But anyway, that march towards decolonization was an unstoppable one. The, the, the yearn of the people for freedom and their, their, their lack of willingness any longer, the lack of acceptance of the idea that it was their fate to live under the um, domination of the European powers. It was, it was gone. It was broken by October. It was broken by socialism, by the advances made by the Soviet Union, by China. Uh, you know, the peoples of the world can't be held down in, in the old ways anymore. And that poses a challenge to the exploiters. You know, they have to find different ways of presenting what they're up to, uh, although, in fact, it's the same thing. Um, so what we're looking at today is a kind of reconstituting of an anti-imperialist bloc that was massively weakened. 
uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the, the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union, the Eastern European socialist countries in 1991, um, had a huge impact on the world. And you, if, if you want to see proof of that, look at the number of liberation struggles which came to a really abrupt and abrupt end and a, and a kind of quite messy compromise in the 1990s uh, because the changed world global situation, balance of forces in the world was affecting liberation struggles in many countries. So we had the South African peace process at that time. We had the Irish peace process at that time. We had the Libyan um, kind of moves towards disarmament and rapprochement with the West. You know, that we had the Palestinian peace process. Right. All of the quite a lot of these were, were kind of truncated. They were they were all dominated. If you look back and think about them by the USA, the USA was the mediator and the middleman in every single one of those. And none of the outcomes was really what the people have been struggling for, although there were compromises that they didn't feel in a position to to, to go further than those. You know, they had to, every struggle has the right to make the compromises it, it feels right. I'm not I'm not saying they sold out or any of that type of thing. I'm just saying the balance of class forces in the world at that time was such that compromises were forced on people everywhere. And our movement, the socialist movement, the anti-imperialist movement was on the back foot, was retreating, you know. Russia was not Russia was on the floor and China was not in a position to step into the role that the Soviet Union had played. Um, uh, so, you know, it was it was really busy just trying to defend its own integrity at that point, as was, you know, Cuba, as was the DPRK, as was Vietnam. You know, the socialist countries were were put in really a, a very big bind by the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and they, they spelt, spent the next decade just trying to s survive. You know, so very difficult conditions. What we're seeing today is the is the beginnings of the of the emergence of the anti-imperialist world from this period. It's strengthening and it's coming back together. And of course, their ability to come back together. You know that Russia's arrival as an anti-imperialist player in the world has seriously shifted the balance of forces for everybody everywhere, and its alliance increasing alliance with China, the increasing strength of the alliance of both of those with the DPRK, you know, and the fact that all those countries have strong self-defense capability, first and foremost. Number two, they have the ability to have a, a certain level of independence in their economic activity. So it's very hard. They can be affected by imperialist sanctions, no doubt, no doubt. And we shouldn't imagine that they can't. They really can. But they have the ability to stand up to that all the same, which gives them uh, and they also have high level of technological development. And that is developing fast in all three of those countries. That high level of technological development is developing fast. Now, the one thing that imperialism fears like the plague is technological dominance being undermined because it's technological dominance that's at the base of everything the imperialists have been able to do. They've been able to exploit unhindered the world and suck all its wealth up to themselves because not only they come with the with a, a weight of capital to invest, but anybody who tries to resist their domination has to face their weapons. And when they have the most advanced weapons in the world, it's such an unequal contest that the idea that these people are just superior kind of seems to have some weight to it. 
you know when the when the when the um europeans turned up uh, in on the shores of the americas when they turned up in africa you know and they didn't even think of their conquests as wars you know because they their massacres were so um uh so one-sided you know it was so hard for native peoples to fight back against the vast superiority of, of technology they had and we've seen it again repeated in since the collapse of the soviet union uh, or the the counter revolution there uh, we've seen the wars that happened in the period following that when the imperialists were feeling strong and like now we can crush all resistance everywhere um the when the wars were launched it's overwhelming firepower you know look at how they blitzkrieged yugoslavia libya iraq afghanistan you know and they do it in such a way that those countries have no ability to answer there's not there's not an it's not two air forces meeting it's oh goodness me sorry i pulled my things out i can't hear now it's two um oh my god i don't know what i did there it's 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 one air force flying unopposed and dropping its bombs from a height where the people can't can't do anything about it right i mean it's the equivalent of the early colonial massacres you know to just come along we're going to take out everything and you know bomb you into submission and you know the people there are just you're going to have to take it until we decide you've had enough right and until you concede to our terms that's essentially you know the the the, the approach of the imperialists so this 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 shift in the balance of forces in the world is a real one and the 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 basis of it i think really is the ability to develop technological parity and to even advance past the the technological level of the imperialists and that's the thing that's really taking out the supremacy the 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 kind of total dominance of the imperialist system and it's opening up possibilities for everybody everywhere to the point where you even have regimes like that that's in power in Saudi Arabia saying to itself maybe there is another way to develop than just being a lackey and maybe you know in the world of of national liberation and independence movements even even the lackeys sometimes get tired of but even the really well paid lackeys can get tired of being lackeys i mean i don't claim to understand what's going on in saudi arabia but you know it's it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that people have got tired of their position of their the permanent position of being you know a, a a stooge for you know however well rewarded you are as the stooge you're still the stooge the real rewards are going somewhere else and your position remains that of you know a kind of backward skivvy really and as far as the imperialists are concerned um the other thing i think that uh, may pack could get you to comment on another factor that's something that i noticed if you know we can divide the world up in any number of manners using you know certainly language but one of the ways it seems to be dividing is based on um let me put it to you like this you may have heard this old psychiatrist trope uh, neurotics build castles in the sky and psychotics live in them right and that what we see is you know the the neoliberals the imperialists whatever so the us the blinkens and the you know the leaders of the uh the 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 um 
um, the EU, etc., that live in this wor- narrative-driven world where they just say, you know, the Russians are fighting with shovels or something or whatever. You know, they make up some trope. This country is losing. This country is winning. They make up narratives that are um, that have no um, relation to reality, and then they just live in those narratives. Well, this person's um, using Russian propaganda. They don't say that it's true or false, that it's valid or invalid. They just use a term like propaganda, therefore don't listen to it, whatever the case may be. Okay. And it seems to me that on one side of these two group, opposing groups it are countries that live in this narrative-driven world, and the other side are countries that kind of live in a more realistic political world, wherein they take into account, hey, we've got people here who may in Saudi Arabia, get angry and cut our heads off and overthrow the government. In another country, for instance, we've heard countries say, look, what you're doing sounds great, U.S. and all that stuff, but we can't feed our people with that. So we got to kind of go with either China or Russia or whatever. The countries wherein the leaders take into account the actual dynamics in their country, the reality, a real conversation, as opposed to this neoliberal you know, imperialist driven narrative world. If you want, do you kind of understand what I'm getting at as far as a division? Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about the division between the imperialist countries and the rest of the world. And really, fundamentally, the historical process of amassing the wealth of the world in one corner of it has clearly resulted in and continues to result in the immiseration of the peoples everywhere else. And they work to stay poor, not even to stay poor, to get poorer. They work hard to get poorer. And the owners of these vast hordes of capital in the West sit and decide where the money's going to go and get richer (laughs) Uh, as it comes back to them off the backs of the work of all of these poor people and all these poor people because the resources and the labor that should be going to build their own economies is all going to service monopoly finance capital in the west their countries not only their people get poorer but their countries don't develop so it's not possible for that process to continue and particularly in the modern era where we have smartphones and we know what the rest of the world looks like. We have the October Revolution and the example that's set and, the, and the, all of the ideologies of liberation exist in the world. It's not possible in that world for the masses to simply accept their fate and sink lower and lower into abject uh, poverty and degradation and not like let anybody know that they're not very happy about it not fight back in any way. It's it's inevitable that the countries which are being plundered and the people who are being immiserated are going to be organising, fighting back, expressing their anger in all kinds of different ways, their frustration. And it's impossible for governments in those countries not to be trying to respond to that in some way or other. Now, you know, if you're a stooge government, you try to respond to it by uh, the classic divide and rule techniques you've been taught by your colonial masters, you know, get a tribal rivalry, a a religious schism, whatever it might be, find ways to pit your population against itself and and, and scapegoat 
sections of the population and all of that sort of thing set up in elites. You know, these are the ways that the colonial, uh, uh, the colonies were run. And these are the way the post-colonial many regimes were trained to carry on running in order to facilitate and, and keep the people down, essentially. But whether they're doing it that way or whether they're actually responding to the needs of their people and saying, you know, this relationship isn't working for us and starting to see that there's an alternative to just accepting it. Um, one way or another, the governments in the uh, oppressed world cannot but be aware of the immiseration of their people and the anger and the rebellious spirit that is fermenting amongst the masses. Um, let's talk about the coup in Niger. That's an interesting term. Um, I turn, I tend to, there are other terms. So, you know, I've had people say to me, well, don't you oppose coups and shouldn't you oppose a, any coup? And I'm like, well, there's another term that I prefer to substitute in this instance with coup and possibly not 100% sure yet, but there's another term, armed struggle. That when, as, uh, as, uh, was it Kwame Ture who said, nonviolence only works when your, uh, adversary, uh, has a conscience. The reality is, if you have someone that has basically, it has a, 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 a multi-century ongoing coup in your country, there, you can't just walk up to them and say, hey guys, can we have our country back? And oh, by the way, you're stealing all our gold and uranium. You may have to act in a matter. I mean, the idea that you're beating me over the head with a stick and I can't pick up a pebble and throw it at you to get you to stop is absurd. So I look at Africa and I think armed struggle. I think these are people who are saying, you know, we want to find a way to get it back. We, we've asked and we've talked to you. You won't listen. So we're going to try to push back and utilizes the resources necessary to take it back. Your thought on the, uh, the French being kicked out of West Africa, the coup in Niger, it's, and ECOWAS, the, re, the, the response and the difficult that ECOWAS is having. Let me add this. I think the Western imperialists thought they could call ECOWAS and say, okay, go get them. Take them out, guys. I don't care how many of you die, whatever. Just go in there. And ECOWAS is not is, is having big trouble doing that. Okay, so I'm going to throw that over to you. Niger, French, France and West Africa, etc. Well, let's work backwards and start with ECOWAS because I think you raise a really interesting point there. Uh, as far as I can see, ECOWAS, it's a bit like the OAS, you know, the Organization of American States or the Arab League. Everywhere you go in the world, the USA has got stooge leaders to get together and agree to some sort of you know what looks like regional cooperation body but which is actually the vehicle for their control um, uh, can i add two other organizations oh please do yeah the eu and nato exactly oh, yeah. the same thing. <laughs> exactly the same and you know um, people get upset with me uh, but i have to say certainly since the end of the cold war i class the un amongst those institutions too. I know that many countries are trying to take the fight into the UN, but I think fundamentally the way it's set up, you know, the, the, the US took control of all of its institutions and bodies, you know, such a long time ago. And uh, I, you know, I understand why people try to take the fight to the UN, but fundamentally I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it's mainly uh, tokenistic because the UN does nothing unless that's been approved by the USA. So, yeah, they can pass all the resolutions it likes, but its action depends on the US's blessing. Um, 
Yeah. So we have this situation where, you know, as you say, they're supposed to get on the phone and say, "Okay, guys, you have to front for us right now. It's not going to look good. It's not going to wash well with our current brand to come in and bomb directly in Africa. Uh, It's going to it's going to look bad. So we need you guys to do it. Um, You know the deal. Um, And we'll be behind. I mean, it's like it's like the Saudis in Yemen. Right. No doubt that if EcoWest does go in. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about whether or not it's going to. No doubt that if it if it does, if it did, there would be US, UK, French military advisors in the back rooms, right? And supplying weapons and training and advice and logistical support and you know all of the things to to keep the war effort going because it's it's been made very clear to everybody that Niger is important. And you know why you know it's important. Because most of the coups that have been happening across Africa in the last 10 years are hardly reported in our media. But this one, they're talking about it a lot. And as far as I can see, the reason they're talking about it a lot is to build up in the popular mindset the idea that a a crime against democracy has has been committed and the Africans need to get together to stop it in its tracks and reverse it. And we all support them in the name of democracy, don't we? Um, so that's the that's the narrative angle, right? We're being prepared to support whatever war effort can be launched. Um, the difficulty of how that war effort is launched has been made also very evident in the last few weeks. And again, we come back to this question of um, the masses and how difficult, you know, for, for example, Nigeria's president made it clear he was happy for Nigeria to lead an ECOWAS invasion to try to overturn the coup. But the Nigerian Senate said, we don't agree with you. The Nigerian people have been out on the street demonstrating. Suddenly, it looks to Nigeria like this could be a dicey enterprise. They might they might push ahead with it. But will they suffer for doing so? I think very definitely they will. And and I think any country that tries to intervene, even if they temporarily get their way, I think there's going to be blowback in all directions from their doing it. Because, as you rightly said, the new government, they call themselves, I think they call themselves a transitional government or a, a committee to defend the homeland, something like that. They clearly have popular support. They are expressing a popular demand. And the popular demand is we need these imperialists to stop looting all our resources and we need them to stop fueling the terrorism that is plaguing our lives and has been since the fall of Libya. The fall of Libya was an attack not only on Libya, not only on anti-imperialism and independence and all the things that Libya represented. It was an attack on all of Africa. And the Africans have been feeling the blowback from that ever since. Libya became what we know Ukraine has become, you know, a CIA playground where every type of uh, uh, nefarious activity is carried on by the imperialists out of the out of the sight of imperialist media. Right. Uh, Hardly covered or talked about anywhere is the fact that they've turned the country, you know, into their playground where they can train jihadis and send them off against countries they want to target where they can run weapons 
to all corners of the globe. Uh, traffic people, trade drugs, you know, every type of nasty activity that they, the imperialists do in order to prop up their rule in various ways is being run out of Libya, just as it was being run out of Ukraine. And it, it reminds me also, you know, this whole, this war on terror that they claim to be helping the Africans to fight. You know, it reminds me of the war on drugs that they set up in Colombia. You know, you have a, a revolutionary armed struggle going on in Colombia that had real possibility of winning and turning Colombia into a into a socialist republic. So what did they do? They set up this war on drugs situation where first they 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 set up a whole load of drug growing and then they send in paramilitaries uh, and, and all kinds of armed forces and turn the whole country into an armed base to fight drugs. Right? They're not fighting the drugs. The, the drugs are their excuse. Actually, they're the ones who are trading the drugs on a world scale, you know, but they are using the excuse of a war on drugs, their kind of moralistic crusade to justify the fact that they're sending all these weapons in to try to actually defeat a popular armed uh, revolutionary movement. Now, if you look at, at Africa, it seems very clear that a, a similar thing has been going on. In order to stop Africans taking control of their countries and their resources and their and their fate, they have kicked off this huge wave. It's horrific, you know, really bloody wave of uh, jihadi terrorism, just like they did in Syria, to create instability, to create popular anger as a way also of, and they recruit from amongst the, the most poor and dispossessed young men, like they had been doing in Xinjiang, right? Which explains why, you know, new governments in Mali and Burkina Faso have identified the connection between poverty and lack of development and jihadi terrorism, as well as the uh, connection with imperialism. So on the one hand, they're saying, look, you imperialists came here, you said you were helping us to fight terrorism. But the terrorism gets worse. And what we see is you're, you are, are doing what you want in our country. And these terrorist uh, outrages just get worse and worse. Our country is being plundered, divided. Our people are murdered and massacred. And, uh, you know, you, you treat our country like you own it. So we say to you, take your bases away. Uh, we will fight terrorism by ourselves or together even better. You know, and again, this, these moves back towards Pan-Africanism are happening. Uh, many of these new governments in Guinea, in Mali and Burkina Faso, and I would uh, expect in Niger as well, they are going to be talking increasingly about working together and cooperating and coming back towards the language of Kwame Nkrumah, the language of Pan-Africanism. Because one thing has been really clear to African liberation fighters from, you know, a century ago. If Africa wants to really be free and sovereign and to develop, it's really going to have to do it together. They have resources, but they have such a, a low level of development. They've been kept artificially underdeveloped. And in order to counteract that, they need the weight of, of, of numbers and to share the resources that they have and really and, and work together. Uh, in the absence of that, you know, help, help that can be got, whether it's military help to be able to resist and repel the imperialists from Russia 
or it's infrastructure building uh, help from China. All of that, you know, is going to be is going to be taken as much as possible. But, you know, the, the, the big key and the reason it keeps recurring over time again and again to Africa's freedom and development is going to be increasing integration as a continent. Sorry about that. I keep, uh, 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 oh, there we go. I keep, um, uh, muting myself. Um, I, I, I find, what I find interesting also here is something that you said about Africa understanding the importance of standing together. And, you know, we look at it in the micro and the macro. You know, what we, what I often say is, you know, there are more of us than there are of them. You know, this is the masses, the people. Once the people realize, you know, that there are more of us and there are more of them, they realize the amount of power that they have. And, of course, as you know, the people in power continually try to say, you guys have to hate each other. You're Catholic. You're Protestant. You're Jewish. You're black. You're white. You must all fight. We all have the same economic needs, but we should fight ourselves for and and, and for reasons other than the actual day-to-day needs that we have for ourselves and our families. Okay. The leader of Burkina Faso is interesting, uh, Traore, uh, Ibrahim Traore, because he basically said to Africans and young Africans, look, we got to stand up. It's now or never. He said, you know, look, if if a slave does not revolt, he doesn't deserve respect. Basically, giving that that that, um, you know, steel spine kind of discussion that says, look, you know, what are we going to stay here in servitude forever? Either we, either we, you know, we fight and we die as, you know, as, as, as valiantly or we, we live in servitude. Can't respect you if you live in servitude. Okay. And then what we saw is this. Burkina Faso says, if you attack Niger, we're in. Algeria says, you better watch the attack in Niger because we might have to join in this. And then, you know, uh, Mali and on and on. And countries are saying, that is, isn't that the great fear of the imperialists? That all of these African countries to get, come together and say in the same way that individuals do it. We see all of these people in the streets with Russian flags or whatever they, whatever. I think part of the Russian flag thing is poking the eye of the empire, sending a message to the empire. We support you. And of course, of course, I got to add this. I don't want to talk too long because I want to hear from you. The fact that the Africans have such a historical context and they understand the importance of the Soviet Union in providing them arms and resources for uh, the initial illusion of liberation. They had the illusion of the liberation. They've had a taste of it. And now they want the real thing. And they see Russia growing again. They see China growing again. And they say... We had an opportunity in the past when we had some strong supporters. We see that again. At any rate, put all that together. Your thoughts on that, uh, Jim? So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, Burkina Faso's President Traore uh, is a very interesting and seems to me from the little I've seen of him to be quite an inspirational figure. He is clearly taking his inspiration from Thomas Sankara, and any of your viewers who don't know about him, go and look him up, try and find some of his writings. Uh, you know, he was an African revolutionary from the 1980s um, who really inspired his people and gave them hope of a, of a, of a better and a more egalitarian world. He was a, he was a, he was a socialist. And um, President Traore seems to be, he's a young man, but he seems to very directly be taking his experience, his 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 um, his uh, inspiration 
from the legacy of Thomas Sankara. And I think the legacy of Thomas Sankara is something which has never gone away. You know, the imperialists had him killed. But as many revolutionaries have pointed out in the past, you can kill a revolutionary, you can't kill the revolution. You can kill the writer, but you can't kill the ideas. Once they're out there, they're out there. And the experience of the people in the intervening period will only have made them more desperate for something like the promise they started to feel in those days of liberated Burkina Faso to come back to them. You know, it was it was Thomas Sankara's liberation movement which renamed what had been Upper Volta to Burkina Faso. And it translates as, well, I like the quite poetic uh, translation of land of the upright man, which I think is beautiful, you know, but they, they it, it speaks of dignity, right? Dignity, we are human beings, we have the right to sovereignty, to dignity, to development, uh, you know, to, to our full humanity. And of course, you can't have that while imperialism is dominating you. Um, I saw a little speech that um, President Traore was giving recently. I think it was the International Day of Youth, something like that. And he was speaking to young people in Burkina Faso, talking to them about the talking to them about two types of terrorism. He said, "We face the terrorism of imperialism, of neo-colonial slavery, which which is a terrorism. We call it terrorism because of what it how it enforces itself on us and what it does to us." And then he says, "We also face the terrorism of you know." These terrorists who are active on our country, occupying, in fact, huge swathes of Burkina Faso's territory, as they do in Mali and, and other parts of, of, the, of that world, and, and Niger as well. Um, and he talked about how the young people under his government were signing up to defend their homeland and really desperate and, and, and keen to get involved in a new project to free their, really free their country. And I think you're going to see, uh, you're seeing the same in uh, Mali. You're seeing, you're, you're going to see something, likely to see something similar in Niger. You know, they had, a, they conducted a census, I think it was, to see whether or not there would be um, a willingness on behalf, of, on behalf of people to come to the defence of the coup government if there was an invasion. And they kind of gave up taking names because they were overwhelmed. So <laughs> the response was basically from the masses, yes, we are up for defending this government in the face of any attempt from outside to overthrow it. So this is something really important, I think, this uh, this heading towards uh, th this this desperate desire of the masses to 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 develop in sovereignty and dignity. You, know, you talked about the USSR. You know, in the in the times of the existence of the USSR, and particularly, uh, well, actually throughout the existence of the USSR, the, the 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 help that the Soviet Union gave to liberation struggles uh, across Africa as well as around the world, but we're just talking about Africa now, was huge, absolutely huge. It made a, a massive material difference. They they provided weapons, training, education. Uh, to fighters and leaders of those movements, uh, unconditional, right? And it, it was a fraternal act of solidarity for people who were repressed and trying to break free. And many movements, as a result, were socialist or socialist-leaning. And many of the early independence uh, governments were socialist or socialist-leaning or pan-African. Um, there... 
not all of them were kind of got rid of immediately. Some of them had, you know, smaller or, or, or longer or shorter uh, periods of actually being able to begin a development process. You know, there was Nairi's government in Tanzania. Um, there was, I have to think about it. There were a few. Uh, my, my brain goes a bit. But, you know, there were a few where there was the beginnings of, and, you know, there was Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso and his government who Kwame had a few Krumah, years. Yeah. Kwame Nkrumah. So they had a few years of starting to set up life as they would like to do it. One of the problems that the, many of them ran into was, the, and Kwame Nkrumah definitely found this problem, that um, they had been bequeathed a state machinery that had been set up by the colonialists whose role it was to facilitate colonial looting. And these institutions have a logic of their own. I listened to a really interesting, I've only heard half of it so far, but a leader of the socialist movement of Ghana, uh, Comrade Opuku, I want to say his name was, very interesting man, you should try and get hold of him, maybe he would come on your show, I don't know. He was very knowledgeable, very interesting uh, man, and he was talking about how in the days of, of Nkrumah, you know, there was this naivete regarding what could be expected once the colonisers had officially left uh, in, by way of their help and assistance and friendliness on the one hand and the sort of hopes that maybe they were all going to be very civilised and kind to one another. And on the other hand, a lack of awareness, which really only, I have to say, only Marxism gives you this, of the state machinery and how it what it actually does, what it consists of and how it operates. And the fact that just changing, you know, the guy who who's who's in the who's the leader of an institution like a university or a media outlet or um or the United service. States Empire. <laughs> or the United the States. Yeah, same absolutely. Thing. It is exactly the same thing. You are right, Garland. It is exactly the same thing. But changing the personnel at the top of these institutions does not change the culture, the mechanisms by which they operate and the function that they perform. And that's the fundamental reason why, you know, I as a socialist, as a communist, say you have to have a revolution. The, the role of the revolution is to remove all these old, completely destroy these old institutions of state by which the ruling class enforces its rule. Its rule doesn't come in Parliament. Its rule comes through all these institutions which were built by it and controlled by it completely. And you can't just change the people and expect the institutions to change. They won't. They've been set up and perfected for a particular job. And what so many of the African, newly liberated African countries found was that they were fighting their own state machineries and they hadn't really understood. They hadn't prepared themselves for that battle. They weren't they weren't. Um, uh, theoretically prepared, they weren't emotionally prepared, they weren't organisationally prepared, and they weren't they weren't able to overcome those those structures. So, um, you know, and then of course, you know, the decline and fall of the Soviet Union has was 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 another huge you know step backwards, and then compounded by massively compounded by the fall of Libya. Because let's not forget what Libya was doing in the years before it was destroyed. Libya was putting huge resources of its own in a fraternal way into developing pan-African projects. 
And you're absolutely right, Garland. Pan-Africanism scares the bejesus out of the imperialists because it's through Pan-Africanism that the Africans will have the ability to develop themselves and to become sovereign. And therefore, everybody who looks as if they're leaning that way is uh, somebody who the imperialists feel very strongly has to be got rid of and got rid of quickly. You know, And the dangerous example that a pan-Africanist government sets is something that they are absolutely terrified of, even if the place where it might happen is something is small and something they maybe could lose. Well, OK, maybe it doesn't matter if I if I don't control Guinea anymore. I've got all the rest of you know Africa. But if it's led by somebody with a clear pan-Africanist vision who's working towards that and trying to build those alliances and, and acting as a base to spread pan-Africanism, which is hugely popular in every corner of Africa, um, that's a big problem. You know, that represents, you know, the, really the, the death of the future of imperialist looting of the continent. And let's not forget that that has continued throughout the modern period. I read somewhere recently, um, and even a, a succession of, uh, quotes by a succession of French presidents who were basically admitting that without their ability to loot Africa, France is nothing. France has remained a global player on the world stage since World War Two because of the wealth it, it extorts from Africa. Well, that is about an hour, Jody. So I certainly appreciate you taking this much time out of your busy day. Um, I certainly, you know, will uh, stay in contact and I, and I hope I can get you on again soon. My audience loves you. I love this. I could listen to you for hours. You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I learned so much from you. I learned so much from um, our conversations. I think it's a great dynamic and I appreciate you coming on. Where can people go to find your anti-imperialist work and all your all your great works? Bless you. Thank you. Well, as far as the World Anti-Imperialist Platform goes, I think you can see a little thingy down here. WAP21.org. Uh, that's it. WAP21.org. You can find the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. We also have a, a Telegram channel called Platform News. Uh, we have uh, a, um, a website called WAP News, uh, where you can get good anti-imperialist news from. Uh, you can follow me personally on Telegram. That's my preferred social media. Just search for Jyoti Bra. Uh, my party is also there. It's The Communists. So that's very easy to find in, in Telegram, <laughs> The Communists. And my party's website, which I'm the editor of that website, it's called thecommunists.org. It's a fantastic source of anti-imperialist analysis that is hard to find elsewhere, so in the English language particularly. And uh, Proletarian TV is uh, where you can get lots of our videos. Wonderful. And everyone who's watching this video, I would ask that you would share this on Twitter. As I said this morning, I got up this morning to find out oddly that my Twitter account is suspended or locked again. I would imagine it's these types of conversations that the uh, the powerful people find quite upsetting. So, you know, they wouldn't want people Sorry, on guys. Twitter to be to be bothered with such, uh, you know, such frippery as uh, as we discussed. Thank you very much, Jody, And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Great. All right, everyone. Thank you very much. That's Jody Brar, probably. I mean, Jody Brar. I mean, you know, Scott Ritter, a lot of people I have on, but the most fun conversation I have from Jody. And I learned so much about, um, about the world, about history. So uh, share this on all your social media platforms and especially Twitter, because apparently I'm not on Twitter at this point. Whether I'll ever be back, I don't know. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. And don't forget everything scrolling across the bottom. Buy me a coffee. 
um, uh, Patreon, all that stuff if you can. I've got, um, I've set up, guess what? I'm setting my, and I want to thank everybody here. I'm setting up my um, people to, and I say my people, like friends who happen to be like very, you know, artsy kind of people, to turn my humble little former bedroom that is now my office into a um, studio. So hopefully within the next month or so, I will have a, you know, other than just a, uh, a bunch of Paul Robeson books and stuff in the background here, I will actually maybe have a real studio. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a wonderful day. I'm out.